It's hard to believe that August is heading towards an end. The summer really is heading towards an end. We're going to, uh, you know, it's still, it's still nice out. It's still warm out. still good uh, beach weather. Uh, but pretty soon you're going to notice the leaves begin to change. You're going to notice that beautiful foliage that's gold and red and yellow. And I really appreciate that time of year, especially in New England. Fall in New England is wonderful. If this is your first fall, I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, And actually, when I started dating Monica, one of the first things I did was I asked her out uh, during the season, and I said, you know, we should go out and we should look at the dead leaves together because they're so wonderful. And that is the verbiage I used, (laughs) dead leaves, because I'm a romantic at heart. Now, Monica loves taking close-up pictures of leaves uh, with our camera. We have a pretty nice uh, camera, and, uh, and you can get some great shots of one, two, maybe a clump of leaves. You can get in close. You can see them. Now, sometimes they're blurry, uh, but oftentimes they're clear. So we probably have over 1,000 pictures of just like individual leaves, and I love it. But we actually have very few pictures of the entire tree. We have very few pictures just kind of taking a step back and admiring the whole tree for what it is. Now, in this series, the series through Genesis, we've kind of been taking a leaf-by-leaf approach. We've been going one story at a time through the book of Genesis. And I've tried to kind of direct us to the greater tree, to some limbs, some branches here or there, but it's a little bit easy to get lost. And so today, I want us to take a step back and to look at the whole tree. So I'm actually going to preach pretty much all 50 chapters today. So you're going to be here about 50 hours. So buckle in. I'm just kidding. But you're going to find that not only do all the leaves work together to to make one big, beautiful tree in the story of Genesis, and that connects to kind of the forest of the Bible, you're going to find that your story is connected into this story. And it's hopefully going to move our hearts and to challenge us tonight. But first, let me say a quick prayer. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to share your word, to preach your word. Would you open my lips to say what you want your people to hear? And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to know you, even through listening to your words, the scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if someone asks you, what is Genesis about, I'm going to give you an answer in one line. Because I imagine this happens to you all the time. You're walking down the street, someone stops you and says, you look like you've been in a church that preaches through Genesis. And you would say, well, I don't really know what Genesis is about. So Genesis, it's actually the title of our sermon today, Genesis is a rescue story. Genesis is a rescue story. Let's go ahead and say that all together. Ready? Genesis is a rescue story. Amen. And we begin to read about this rescue story in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God created us for relationship with him, but we broke the relationship. 
You need to rescue someone who is in a bad position, who needs, who's lost, who, who's experiencing hardship. We're those people. We've been lost, and we need to be rescued. And specifically, what we lost is a relationship with God, a good relationship. Now, we're looking here, this kind of summarizes Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 11. Now, this is uh, from creation to a man named Abraham. We studied him. It's uh, 11 chapters, but it's really, it doesn't, the, the scriptures don't say exactly how long this lasted. Uh, we learn uh, from this beginning point in the Bible that God created everything. He created everything out of nothing. He created us to know him, but God doesn't answer all of our questions. Like, God, how old is the universe? Things like that. And if you want to learn more about what God teaches us in Genesis chapter 1, you can read uh, through Genesis chapter 1 and listen to one of the first sermons in this series. But in Genesis chapter 1, one of those truths that we, that we learned was that God created us for relationship with him. And he did this by making us in God's image. So I want you to look at a verse that we're going to put up on this screen. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This means that men and women, that we are equally created in God's image. That means we're, we're like God. We're not the same as God, but we're created to know God. Now, uh, many of you either have children or you have parents. All of you have parents. And, and one of the things that you notice about your relationship is that you're you're, you're similar to them. You pick up their habits. Uh, perhaps you look a little bit like them. And God, it's, it says in Genesis 1.27, created us in his image. And that means that you and I, well, in some ways, we look a little bit like God. We have similar uh, characteristics. And we, if you read the big story of the Bible, you'll even read that uh, God became man. And he really looks like us through the person of Jesus Christ. But that's getting ahead of the story. The first thing and the most important thing that I think to know about what it means that God created us in his image is that God created us for relationship with him. You have a relationship with your children. You have a relationship with your parents. And this is how God created us for relationship. And those first men and women, Adam and Eve in the garden, they actually walked with God. They spoke with God. They knew God face to face, just like you know the members of your family. But this relationship, it was a good relationship. It could have lasted forever, but something went wrong. Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and we broke the relationship. Genesis chapter 3, we broke that perfect relationship we were experiencing with God. Now, God gave Adam and Eve one command. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what is one of the things that we did? We went and we ate from that tree, that forbidden tree. Maybe you're thinking in your mind, well, that's not such a big deal, you know, be, uh, you know eating from a fruit. We don't really know if it was an apple or some other fruit. 
But when Eve and then Adam bit into that fruit, they were saying, God, I'm going to do life my way. God, I don't trust you. God, I don't want to be in relationship with you. Therefore, I'm breaking up with you, God. That's what happened, Genesis chapter 3. And so there was this fracture There was this fracture in this beautiful, wonderful, awesome, uh, loving relationship between God and people. And suddenly, sin was introduced into that relationship. And God is holy, and so he can't be in the presence of sin. And so, there was a fracture. It says when they ate it, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, that their eyes were opened. See, they knew good and evil now, something that God had control over, something that God knew. They knew, but they knew it experientially. They had experienced evil in their own lives. And it says, they felt shame for being naked. One of the first things they did was they hid themselves. They felt shame. See, now our once perfect relationship with God, not only is it broken, it's filled with shame. It's filled with lies. It's filled with distrust. God doesn't have any of these problems. It's us. We have introduced them into the relationship with him. Our broken relationship with God has led to complete brokenness today with other people. Adam and Eve experienced brokenness uh, among themselves and then brokenness with creation. There was a rift between us and all that God had made. All that God had made was good, and we introduced the sin. And we still experience this even now. World War II was one of the most deadly wars in all of history. Approximately 75 million men, women, and children were murdered or killed in World War II. That's atrocious. In the space of about seven years, 75 million people. More recently, we we haven't just evolved out of this. This is still taking place. The Bosnian genocide in the 90s killed about 100,000 people. This is not that long ago. Now, that's an example of us being at odds, having a broken relationship with each other. But what about with creation? That suddenly we harm creation and creation harms us. You may remember the 2004 tsunami that struck Indonesia, India, some of those surrounding regions. It killed approximately 280,000 people. Now, that's not saying we did something that then caused that outside of that initial break, that we are at odds. More recently, in 2010, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed as many as 230,000 people, and it displaced millions. This is an example of us experiencing a broken relationship with creation. See, the consequences of a broken relationship are ugly. And this is Genesis chapter 4 through 11. We just look at these chapters and we read them and we see just the ugliness, the ugliness of sin and what it's done to us and our love of God and how we have been broken and hurt and now we hurt each other. Now in Genesis chapter 4, we read about the first children of Adam and Eve who they created in their image to know them. 
Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain, he was the oldest, and then his younger sibling, Abel. And it turns out that Cain murders Abel. That's right, he kills him. He's jealous of him, and he murders him. That's the ugly, that's the sin. Now, God spares Cain, but the descendants of Cain are really the spiritual descendants of him. Uh, Biologically, yes, but his family line seems to exemplify this evil nature. He has kind of a a great, great, great descendant named Lamech. And what does Lamech do? He's the first to take multiple women to be his wives. He's a polygamist. He treats them like cattle. And then he kills a young man, and he boasts in it. He glorifies in it. He says, you know, if Cain is avenged avenged seven times, then I am avenged 77 times. Pure evil. See, people have become so wicked in this first segment of the scriptures that God says, I have to wipe them out. I have to start anew. They are so broken with each other and with me and with creation that I have to wipe them from the face of the earth and start anew. And that's where the story of Noah comes in. Now, many of you think perhaps of Noah as a really great guy that God looked down from heaven and said, wow, that guy is really good, so I'm going to save him. I'm going to put him in a boat, and he's going to make it, him and his wife and his sons, and they're going to get off the boat, and then those good people are going to restart the human race. Well, actually, Noah was wicked. Noah was wicked just like everyone else because wickedness is in the heart. We all experience that broken relationship with God. Noah was a sinner just like you and me are a sinner and also deserve God's judgment. So Noah was a wicked man who God saved and then God, uh, through, through the years, walked with him. And it says that Noah was a righteous man. That's a summary statement of his life. That God transformed Noah from a wicked man to one who believed in God, one who trusted God, and one who was counted as righteous by God. That's the story of Noah. See, we see God in his mercy and in his grace reaching down and pulling people from those broken relationships that we all deserve. And one of those people is Noah Now, Noah does restart kind of the human race with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But sin starts right back up. The relationship isn't healed because sin is too deep to wash off the face of the earth. Sin is a heart issue. You can't clean that out apart from a miracle by God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we kind of see the climax, the epitome of this evil, uh, this evil relationship that people are creating among themselves. And we see the Tower of Babel. It's a city that people create to do wicked things, to be wicked. And to, it's really like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a place that you wouldn't want to go on vacation. It's a place where you wouldn't want a timeshare. God, in his mercy, scatters them sends them out, gives them multiple languages and, and, and sends them out into the earth. That's an act of grace on God's behalf. And that really ends this first part of the scriptures, Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. We're left at this broken point looking for hope. Where is the hope, God? Where is this story going to go? And God would have been perfectly right in just destroying the earth 
and saying, all right, that's it. That's the end of the story. But he's not going to. He's going to bring hope. See, we all experience, we all know what it means to have broken relationships with others and with creation. God created us for relationship with him, but we broke the relationship. I was thinking about kind of an example of this yearning, this yearning that we all experience for a healed relationship with others, with God, with creation. And I thought of a movie, (laughs) Miss Congeniality, maybe some of you have watched that. I, I enjoyed it. I think it's almost a classic now. Uh, but Miss, Miss Congeniality is about a cop going undercover at a woman's beauty pageant. And in the competition, the host, his name is Stan, he asks the contestants this question. He says, what is the most important thing our society needs? What is the most important thing our society needs? So we all kind of have an answer for that. And there's a montage of contestant after contestant giving the exact same answer. They say, world peace. Well, that's easy, world peace world peace. And there's clapping and cheering, and everyone loves that answer. Then the host, William Shatner, he asks the cop, it's Sandra Bullock, he asks her the question, what is the most important thing our society needs? And she says, that would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. (laughs) And there's silence. This is more, more noise than there was in the movie. It's just crickets. You can just hear crickets. And so she adds, and world peace, and they all cheer. We live in a broken world where we all know, you know, we need world peace. We need community peace. We need family peace. We need relationship peace. We need peace every single day of our lives, but we don't know how to get there. We can't just imagine it and it becomes a reality. You know, one solution is more law, more laws, harsher punishments. And we see that in a little bit of the story of the Bible. As you look at the Pentateuch, what do you see? You see law early on. But the ultimate solution is not law for world peace. And so let's continue in the story because our hearts, our hearts are yearning for God. They are yearning for a healed relationship. Our hearts are yearning to go back to the garden to go back to Eden. God created us for a relationship with him, but we broke the relationship. And so this leads into a reminder of what Genesis is all about. Genesis is a rescue story. Praise God, Genesis is a rescue story. And how God is going to rescue people is by using people. God is going to use a family, Abraham's family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God uses Abraham and his family to rescue our broken relationship, our broken relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Now, God promises to fix the broken relationship through Eve's line. So there's Adam, there's Eve. When God curses the serpent... Maybe you remember the curse, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. God comes into the garden, they hide, and God deals out the consequences of their sinning against him. And one of the things God does is he gives a curse on the snake, 
on Eve and on Adam, and we all have to live experiencing the consequences of those curses even today. And I want to read you the curse that God put on the serpent, Satan, the snake. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is called the Proto-Euangelion, which means the first gospel. Gospel means good news. Already, in the midst of disaster, God is preaching good news to fallen people, to hurt people. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is promising that one of Eve's biological, but also spiritual descendants, the offspring Another way of translating this is seed. One of your seed, Eve, that's the Hebrew word Zerah, one of your seed, Eve, will come and will get into a battle with the serpent and will crush the serpent, will destroy the serpent, will defeat Satan. And it even gives a hint of how that will take place, that the serpent will wound the offspring, will wound the seed. And we're going to read about that later. Now, Cain is no good. Cain has, is obviously the offspring of the serpent. Now, spiritually, biologically, he's an offspring of Eve. But spiritually, he is choosing to disobey God, to, to dishonor God, to not be one of God's people, to not trust in God. And so God gives Eve another son. God gives her the son, Seth. Now, Eve gives birth to Seth. And the descendants of Seth, some of the famous ones are Enoch. It says Enoch walked with God and he was taken up into heaven. And then a little bit later, there's Noah. So we just, I just told you a little bit about Noah. And then there's Shem, who is the father of the Semites, the Shemites, the Jewish people. And eventually it gets to Abraham, the man named Abraham. Genesis tells us that Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God. And if we read the story of Abraham, we see Abraham was a man who walked with God as well. See, God promises to bless all peoples through Abraham. Now, he wasn't named Abraham at the beginning. He was called Abram. When God calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12, so we're in the next part of the scriptures, God promises to bless Abram. He promises to bless Abram with three things that we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He promises to bless Abram with a place, a people, and a presence. A place, a people, and a presence. And we see that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He's promising a place. If we read the story of the Bible, we see that's Canaan, modern day Jerusalem, that region. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. He's promising a people. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Notice how many times God says, I. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. What is God saying? He's saying, I will be with you. My presence will go with you, Abram. I will be with you. Verse 3 continues, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, I'm going 
I'm going to rescue the broken relationship between God and people, and I'm going to do it through your descendants, Abraham. I'm going to do it through you. And you're going to have a great spiritual family. You're going to have a multitude of descendants who claim you as their father spiritually because they know me. And it's not going to be just the Jewish people. It's also going to include everyone else, the Gentiles, anyone who's willing to call on my name and the one I'm going to send, that offspring. Now, there's only one problem for Abram. Abram is 75 years old. You know how many children he has? Zero. He has none. His wife is barren. See, he and his wife have kind of a dead womb, a dead seed. But Abram is is a man that believes in a God that can bring life out of death. See, he believes God. He trusts that God can bring about this promise even when it looks like like this could never happen apart from a miracle. Abram believes in the miracle even though he's 75 years old. This is what we call resurrection hope, that God can produce life out of death. You may believe something just like that today. God ratifies this promise. So God makes a covenant. He makes a promise with Abram and he ratifies it. So he kind of puts his stamp on it saying, I will never break this promise through a covenant. So what is a covenant? Now there is a kind of academic definition which I gave you. If you go to the Genesis chapter 17 sermon on the website, uh, cornerstonewestford.com, you can listen to that sermon and hear the more uh, uh, kind of in-depth definition. But a simple definition of what a covenant is, is a promise where God is involved. And the promise that God makes Abraham is an unconditional covenant. In other words, there's nothing that Abram has to do in order to, for God to keep his promise. God is going to be the one to keep his promise, to bring about everything he promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. See, God is going to give Abram a place, a people, and a presence, and it's all on God. And we see that demonstrated in a weird covenant-making ceremony at the end of Genesis chapter 15. Abram takes some animals, uh, and he splits them in half, and and he spreads them, so it's a pretty gruesome scene. And then God's presence comes in this smoking fire pot and and goes between the pieces. And what God is symbolically saying is, I'm going to be like this. I'm going to be torn apart if I don't keep my promise, if I don't heal the broken relationship, if I don't bless you and bless all peoples, Abram, I'm going to be like these animals. I'm going to be split in half. And that's also hinting about how God is going to do this. God is going to be torn apart. But that's a little further in the story. And Abram's response is the response that God wants all of us to have, and that is faith. Genesis 15 says, uh, 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord, and he, so God, credited it to him as righteousness. God Uh, credited it on Abram's account. So if you believe God and Abram believed God, you also can receive righteousness on your account. That means holiness. And what was that problem? What was that thing that was causing the rift in our relationship between God? It was sin. Well, suddenly, 
Abram doesn't have to deal with that sin issue anymore because he has righteousness. And so now he can have a healed relationship with God. And that's hinting at how every person that trusts in God can have a healed relationship with him. And you know what? God does stay good to his promises. He stays true. Abram and Sarah, they give birth to a son. That son's name is Isaac. And it's a long time after God made the promise. It's 25 years later. Abram is 100 years old, and he has a son. Sarah must have been in her late 90s. God renames Abram. He renames him to Abraham because there's something about that name that means uh, he will have kind of a great multitude of descendants. He's going to make him into a great people. So God promised a son. There was a son of promise. Who was that? That's Isaac. Abraham's son of God's promise is Isaac. And then Isaac also gives birth to another in that family line, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the great forefathers of the Jewish people and ultimately of anyone who trusts in Christ. Now, we didn't study Isaac. We didn't study Jacob. We didn't study their lives, but we skipped right to Joseph. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, why did we do that? Or what can he tell us about the story. Remember, what is Genesis about? Genesis is a rescue story. And every good rescue story needs a hero. It needs a rescuer. And so how Joseph fits in the big story is he is, he's painting a picture of what this one-day rescuer will be like, what that offspring, what that seed, what that Zerah will be like. See, Joseph is a savior figure. Joseph is a rescue hero. Joseph is a rescuer. Saving Private Ryan, it's about a rescue and a rescuer. Apollo 13, it's about a rescue. We see rescuers. And there's Toy Story. All of these kind of classic movies, they all have rescuers who go on a mission and they save people. Sometimes they save themselves. And as it turns out, the great rescuer of all of these stories is Tom Hanks. (laughs) Joseph is modeling who the ultimate rescuer will be, and he's much greater than Tom Hanks. But it's interesting to note that it doesn't, it's not one of Joseph's descendants that becomes the rescuer. It's actually a man named Judah one of his older brothers, not the oldest, but one of his brothers. See, God is going to send a rescuer to heal our broken relationship, and the man he is going to use is a man named Judah. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. All right, the rescuer is going to come from Jacob's son, Judah. We see that in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, what we read today. Thank you, Josiah, you did a great job. Now, in Genesis 37, it's kind of the beginning. Andy preached a great message on Joseph and his 12 brothers, his his, uh, 10 older brothers, kind of uh, uh, getting jealous of him. He had some visions where he, he saw that God was going to bless him. And his brothers get jealous. They get jealous of this, this coat that he's given by his father. And they, they, they catch him and they throw him up in a pit. They send him uh, down to Egypt. They, well, they, they sell him to slavers. And the slavers take him to Egypt. He's betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in prison again. And one day, he interprets some dreams for the chief baker 
and the chief cupbearer, and then they get a, one of them gets out of prison. The other one uh, is, is executed. And then two years later, Joseph is brought before Pharaoh to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has some incredible dreams that Joseph interprets. He's the rescuer in the story, but we're not talking about Joseph. We're talking about Judah. Now, I want to tell you about a story in Genesis chapter 38 that we didn't have time to read. But if you look at the kind of, you kind of read these chapters in order, it seems kind of out of place because it's the story of Judah, his sons, and a prostitute. Now, Judah, he marries. He marries a foreign woman, a Canaanite. He has a son named Er, and he gives Er to a woman named Tamar. But Er is wicked. We are not really told how, and so God kills Er. God puts him to death. And there's this rule that we see clearly stated later in Scripture, but they would have been practicing at this, this time, called Leverite Levir, <laughs> marriage. Leverite marriage. Sorry, I should have practiced that before I got up here. Leverite marriage. And what it means is that if you have a daughter-in-law who doesn't have any children, whose husband dies, the, the father-in-law, someone in that family has to give her another husband, and it's the next son in line. It's the next unmarried brother. And so uh, Judah gives the son Onan to Tamar, but Onan also turns out to be wicked, and so God slays him. And so as you can imagine, like any good father, maybe Judah is getting a little bit nervous about giving a third son in marriage to Tamar, but that doesn't matter. That's what he's supposed to do. It wasn't her fault. They were the ones who were wicked. But Judah holds back. He doesn't give her his son, his third son. He kind of forgets about Tamar. And she's a widow. She doesn't have children. And so one day she dresses up as a prostitute and sits beside the road. Now Judah, his wife has just died. And so he is feeling lonely. The Bible, just because it reports it, doesn't condone it, doesn't encourage it. But Judah goes and sleeps with this roadside prostitute, and it's Tamar, and she conceives and gives birth, uh, is pregnant, and, and it's told to Judah, and Judah has the opportunity to kill her, but she comes out and says, no, she gives evidence, no, the, the, the father is you, Judah. See, this is your son that you should have given me by marrying one of your sons to me, but I had to trick you because this is what's right. And Judah begins to realize what he did wrong. He begins to repent. He realizes his own sin. He honors her and says, wow, you did the right thing here, not me. And we see this heart attitude of repentance come into play in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Because Judah, uh, Joseph's brothers, they come to Egypt and they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph is now in charge at Egypt. He is the one who, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dreams said that there was a famine that was coming. There was going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of a famine. And Joseph interpreted that and said, you know, here's a plan for dealing with that, Pharaoh. You know, build storehouses, uh, pull in extra grain, extra feed, and Pharaoh said, well, why don't you do that? I'm going to put you in charge. And so now Joseph is in charge. His brothers show up, and they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph begins to test them. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. He's testing their hearts to see where they're at. And Reuben, he doesn't pr prove to be repentant. Many of the brothers don't seem to be repentant. 
but Judah is. Because at the very end of the story, Joseph has, has planned it so that he is going to take the youngest, Benjamin, who is his father's favorite son, Abraham's favorite son after Joseph passed, or according to uh, his brothers. God takes, uh, well, Benjamin goes down to Egypt, much to Jacob's chagrin. He didn't want his son to go down. He protested. And Judah had to guarantee that Benjamin would come back. And Joseph put a silver cup in Benjamin's sack and really can prove now that Benjamin has stolen this. And now Benjamin has to be put into slavery uh, for Joseph. And Judah, at this darkest of moments, he steps up and says, no, I will take Benjamin's place. If Benjamin is taken into captivity, this will absolutely crush our father. I will take Benjamin's place. I will be a slave for the rest of my life. Set him free. I'll deal with the consequences. Judah demonstrates a hard attitude of repentance. And this just knocks Joseph on the floor. Joseph weeps. The, the story comes out of how he's been testing them because Joseph is modeling the rescuer. But Judah is also demonstrating something else. He's demonstrating the gospel. See, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is our substitute. Just like Judah was a substitute for Benjamin, Jesus, if you know him, becomes your substitute for all your sins, and he gives you his righteousness. That's the story, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Now, at the end of Jacob, so he's the father of the 12, at the end of his life, he's blessing his sons. And this brings us to Genesis chapter 49, where we are right now. And we didn't, I didn't have uh, the, the worship team or the, the scripture reader read the whole passage, but you see different blessings, 12 different blessings for, for the 12 different sons of Jacob. And I just want us to zero in on Judah's blessing, because what the blessing is saying is that Judah will be the kind of the forefather. He will be the, the, the great-grandfather of a royal line. See, the rescuer, the rescuer is going to be a royal king. The rescuer is going to be royal. Now, what do we see in, in, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10? It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So it's saying Judah, is his line is going to be this kingly line. It's going to be the, the, the line that has authority, that's in charge. Then what else does it say? Think back to Genesis 3.15 when God promised an offspring to Eve who's going to crush the serpent. That means there's going to be an individual, an individual king who's going to come from Judah's line. And what does it say in, in, in chapter 49, verse 10, the second half? It says, the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The nations. What was the promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3? That God would bless all nations through Abraham. See, God is saying there's going to be a descendant. There's going to be a descendant of you, Abraham, who's going to come, and he's going to come from Isaac, Jacob, and then he's going to come from Judah. This is good news for Judah. He didn't deserve this. Many of the other brothers kind of receive a mixed bag. They, they receive almost curses. Judah deserved to be cursed, but he demonstrated a hard attitude of repentance. God showed him mercy. 
And we see through his line that, a, that the only true king will come, the only one who is worthy to hold a scepter, the only one who can really bless the nations is going to come. He's going to come through Judah, the king. Now, Judah is the great forefather of the greatest king of Israel. So remember, there's a man named Saul. Well, Saul is not a descendant of Judah. Now, you kind of have to know the big story of the Bible, so if this is new to you, just bear with me. But one of the greatest kings of Israel is a man named David. David is called a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 7, oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. So you can write that and you can look it up later. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God promises that one of David's descendants, one of his seed, one of his offspring, one of his Zerah, same Hebrew word, is going to rule forever. And as we, we read the story of the Bible, so if you go through the Bible and you read all the Old Testament, you see that there are lots of kings who come and who go, and none of them are worthy. None of them are good. Some of them obey God and have periods of goodness, but none of them have a perfect heart. Because that problem that originated at the beginning is still there. There's still a broken relationship. People can heal, uh, experience a healed relationship with God, but at our core, we're still disobedient to God. And finally, in, Gen in, in the New Testament, the story changes once again. And you don't have to read very far in the New Testament to read the story changing. The first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 1, thank you for getting right to the point. It says, this is the genealogy, so like the family tree of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Who's that? That's the king, the son of Abraham. See, the king has come. The offspring has come. The seed has come. The ruler has come. See, Jesus is a descendant of David, but he's also a descendant of Tamar. He's a descendant of that roadside prostitute. He's a descendant of Judah, that not very good man who demonstrated a heart attitude of repentance and who modeled substitutionary atonement for us, standing in the place of another, of another to take their punishment. That's what Jesus did for us. Judah's family line. See, Jesus is related to, to Jacob. He's related to Isaac. He's related to Abraham. He's related to Seth. He's related to Eve. Jesus is the offspring. Jesus is the seed. And remember what, uh, what Judah is called in verse 9? It says, Judah, this is Jacob blessing Judah. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? What's Jesus called in the very last book of the Bible? Kind of the, the opposite of Genesis. We have Genesis is the, is the beginning. And what's the very last book? The book of Revelation. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> because Jesus is the Lion that tore off the snake's head. Jesus is the Lion that defeated not only Satan, not only the serpent, but sin itself. Jesus is the one who restores the broken relationship between God and people. And how does he do it? Well, G, uh, Gen, uh, Revelation in the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 6, says that Jesus is the lamb looking as if he had been slain. How does Jesus defeat the serpent? Through the cross. 
through substituting himself for us on two planks. See, we all deserve to be on that cross, but Jesus, the rescuer, just like Joseph saved his brothers, just like Joseph saved all of Egypt, just like Joseph saved uh, his family, Jesus saves you. And he does it by being the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain on the cross for us, for my sin. See, the rescuer loses his life to rescue us. Our lion is slain. Our rescuer has come in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your rescuer? <laughs> Do you know him? Is Jesus purely your lion where he stands in judgment over, over you because you don't know him and you just see him as this ferocious beast? Jesus is all of that. But Jesus is also a lamb that went to his death. So if you've put your faith in Christ, his record becomes your record. Jesus never sinned, never did anything wrong. Do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Have you put your faith in the lamb? If you don't, I beg of you, tonight's the night. Let's get on that. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, and he can be the lamb who was slain for you. cool thing about Revelation is you see that God has restored that broken relationship between us and him. You see a great multitude, a great multitude of people that are, are in heaven. See, the, the broken relationship between God and people is healed. And if you read the book of Revelation further, how does it describe Satan? It describes Satan as a great dragon, Jesus defeats him in the book of Revelation. God has sent a rescuer to heal our broken relationship. Genesis is a rescue story. I want to give you one big challenge as we close tonight, as we head towards an end. God invites you to be a part of the search and rescue team. If you know Jesus Christ, then you're on the search and rescue team to go out and to reach the lost. And our tendency is to kind of come to the search and rescue training complex, which is the church. We come to the, the complex, and we worship God, and we train about how to go out, how to go out into the darkness, and how to rescue people. But instead of doing that, we go home. And then we come back next week. And we never go out on mission we never, we never go out to, to reach the lost with our flashlights, with the word of God, with our faith stories. We never go out boldly. And so I want to challenge you tonight. We have a day coming up where it's not just about growing Cornerstone as a church. It is about seeking the lost. It is about rescuing people that need to be rescued. In your bulletins, there's an insert. It's the top 10 most wanted and I encourage you to take some time right after I close. Uh, we're going to sing a song, but take some time. Stay seated and fill out 10 names of people that need rescue, that need rescue by Jesus Christ. And if you don't know 10 people, you need to get out there. You need to start to make some friendships with those that don't know him. 
Write down 10 names. It can be a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. It can be someone that you see regularly at Market Basket and you never say anything to them. That can be the person that you begin to pray for. And you begin to pray, God, will you rescue them and use me? Use me to help rescue them. So write down the 10 names, then I want you to pray about one name on that list. One name that you're going to work up the courage, and you're going to go out into the darkness, and you're going to shine a light on their path, and you're going to say, would you come? You come to Cornerstone on September 10th. This is our Bring a Friend Day. This is our Newcomer's Day. This is our big day. Come, check out Cornerstone. Hear the message of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do as a church, not just to grow this, but to grow the kingdom of God, to go out, to be on mission, to do what God is calling us to. Genesis is a rescue story, and you can be a part of that rescue story. You can band together with the chief rescuer. Genesis is a rescue story. I'm going to close there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this rescue story. Give us the courage to to band together with you, to go out into the night, not just because we're told to do it, but because we have received rescue ourselves, that Jesus Christ is our substitute and we want others to receive his grace just like we have. In Jesus' name, amen.